Welcome to another edition of Stats on the Boyd Meets World podcast. Colin Clapham joins me again, this time gainfully employed, to talk about four big concepts in the world of numbers. You might hear me say five topics, but we ended up talking, taking one out uh, for its own episode to be released in the near future. Anyway, we talked about how to shave games off the MLB season, analyzed baseball trades, discussed ESPN's BPI rankings for how they rank college basketball teams, and then talked about team-building structures in the NFL. Enjoy it. All right, we are in. This is uh, this is episode four of Stats with an exclamation mark at the end of it. Um, back joined with me today is Colin Clapham, as always. Last time you heard from Colin, this, was, this man was unemployed. Radically different now. He's he's glowing. He's beaming. He's I'm he's an adult. Yeah, he's on direct deposit. He's he's got everything figured out. Um, I think the big number we're going to talk about a lot of numbers, but the big number that I want you to articulate to everybody is how many applications you sent. I I hit 120 over five months, <laughs> um, which is an extraordinary clip. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a lot. Um, I would not recommend it. <laughs> How I could ask like how dark did it get, but the the real question is how close were you to thinking I need to work in food service? Like that was yeah no my first option was to download Wag there to we walk dogs yeah so yeah that would have been great <laughs> yeah you could make uh, a good twelve hundred dollars a year and pay eleven hundred back but, in taxes yeah that's exactly what happened to me I would get to be able to walk dogs there, yeah so Wag if you're listening you need to do a better job of yeah. uh, explaining your your tax structure um, <laughs> to your employees not bitter though not bitter at a great time um, so we'll talk about a bunch of different stuff well first of all I mean if if we talked about just the statistics, the raw statistics of your 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 odyssey to find a job. One out of 120. That's, that's, I mean, you could be a Mariners catcher with that batting average. You could. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, your your like different heat maps of of you know like I got to this level of of interview. Mm-hmm. You know this this cover letter, this follow up. That could be a good section of your book about stats one day. When right. You're talking about this. Yeah. We would literally sit in class after class, and we would tailor cover letters so that we could trick. The computers that read them, so that they ours would get like put it on the top of the list. That's incredible. So it was and it worked. Any the scary any, part? Any tips for? Oh, just Google whatever job you're applying for. Just Google buzzwords in that industry and okay. include as many of them in your cover letter as possible. Because more than likely, a human is not reading that. They're putting it through a computer and it's sure. looking for count word counts and placement of words and mm-hmm. all that other junk. So. Is there a theory out there of you're sending it in a PDF, but you're sending, uh, like, in the in the header of it, you're sending all those buzzwords just in white text? Yeah, I was thinking about that, Is that, that possible? Too. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, that's how they do, um, that's how they get some messages to go straight to spam, uh-huh. is they'll include a bunch of dirty words in white text okay. on the very bottom of emails so that it goes straight to spam for one reason or another. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. Crazy world out there, right? Crazy, crazy yeah. stuff. <laughs> um, all right, so we'll break into it. Uh, we got five topics on the day: two related to baseball, um, and then a third, kind of talking about the medical side of things, which should be interesting. We're going to talk a little college basketball and the flaws um, of rankings and how how impossible it is to rank rank teams in college basketball given the landscape. And then also, what's the best way to build a team uh, in the NFL? So happy to talk about all of those. First one though is. 
the the big gripe with with the MLB is obviously, you know, games are too long, seasons too long, games too boring. You're losing the ADD generation. What what types of things can you do to make this a more palatable game? To make this a, a more attractive uh, sport to a younger audience? The big one there is obviously the proposal. Let's just cut games, right? But you need to cut games up to a point where it's still valuable. You're not just cutting an arbitrary number of games. So you dug deep into what type of things do you need to consider uh, when you're thinking of what's that what's that number, that magic number of games that the MLB could cut off of its season. So uh, explain to us what you did to find that information out. Yeah, so the angle that I was taking, and I think it's, it's the complaints on both sides, right? It's, you know, people who watch the game, the majority of people think that the you know the season's too long and you know they want to cut down on games and even players are coming out and saying now so i know chris bryant back in april was complaining um and he's like you know a young guy he's a star athlete he's in yep. really good shape and he's saying too many games like conditioning is so difficult like that's why people get hurt everything like that um so the angle i was coming at was i want to see if i can my goal was to cut find a metric to cut out 30 games um, and I wanted to be fair to division winners of the past because sometimes uh, divisional races go down to the last week or the last day of the season. Um, and if you were to cut out games, you know, if a team goes on a hot streak, like I think of the Red Sox in 04, like they went on a hot streak in August. Mm-hmm. If you cut out that last you know, month of September, then they probably wouldn't have made the playoffs. Um, so what I wanted to do was I wanted to keep that in mind. Um, and I wanted to make it fair to teams that had different payrolls. Um, so my thought was uh, teams that have higher payrolls should technically reach like that tipping point in the season much quicker in mm-hmm. terms of you know them knowing that they're going to make the playoffs or them winning the division. Yep. Um, so uh, I was looking at a bunch of things. I went back uh, the past 10 years. So I went 08 to 2017. I looked at the records of all the division winners, not the wild card winners. That would have convoluted the analysis a little bit. Um, uh, but I wanted to make some sort of ratio that said, you know, on average, at how many games left in the season should there be when this team hits that tipping point where, okay, like, I know I'm making the playoffs. I know I'm going to win the division based on this, the rest of my record. I, you know, I haven't clinched the division yet, but the probability of not winning the division is so low now that I'm comfortable. So I, it's not like this rest of the season doesn't matter, but it's just, you know, statistically unnecessary, right. I guess. That makes sense. That's what I'm saying. So, um, so I was looking at, um, you know, the average number of games uh, that division leaders won in the past 10 years is 95. Um, the average number of games over 81, so there's 162 games in the season, so 81 and 81 would be 500. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were uh, 14 games over 81, um, and the average number of games over 500 was 28. Um, so I was trying to, like, you know, look, you know, maybe look at, at any point in the season, was that team that many games above 500? So at, at some point in August, was some team 28 games over 500? By the way, the Red Sox are 50 games over 500. But um, uh, just put it out there. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so you know, I was I was playing with a bunch of things. Um, so what I wanted to do um, was basically take an average of the amount of 
games left in the season for when those teams hit that tipping point. Um, so I made this stat called Go81. Um, Which, by the way, if not if not for the sake of branding, this this is a stat that's going places. Right? It's called yeah. Go81. <laughs> Who doesn't yeah. want, like, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. So at least I got the name right. The end result didn't turn out the way I hoped, but... I think you can reshift that into, like, a diet. Yeah, like fit, yeah, right? Like TV 12 yeah. like Go81. Go81. Yeah. yeah. It would be, like, the complete opposite of... Yeah. yeah. Terrell Owens would, would sponsor yes. it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, right. But essentially what I was doing was I was going to take... I was going to find the number of games over 500 to that sweet spot, and I was going to multiply it by some tuning parameter, and it was going to be based on team revenue. So what I decided was um, it was going to be games over 500, so it was uh, how, how many games were left when you hit that... 28 games over 500 yep. mark. So, so say the um, say this here, the Houston Astros get to the 28 games over 500 threshold with 13 games left in the mm-hmm. season. That's their that's the numerator yep. of this of this fraction. Yep. Okay. So that would that would be you know uh, the numerator, and then the denominator is going to be based on your team payroll rank for that season. So what that means is out of the 30 teams. Do you have the highest payroll? That would mean it's one, um, obviously, all the way down to 30. Um, the logic of that is, let's say I am, you know, the Red Sox. I don't think they're – I think the Dodgers are actually ranked first this year in terms of payroll. Red Sox, Giants, Dodgers. Red Sox, Giants, okay. So let's say I'm the Red Sox. Um, I would expect that my team should hit that 28 games faster. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'm going to do is uh, – I'm going to say, all right, if it's 28 games, I'm going to divide it by one, and that's how many games left in the season. So you should hit that number sometime in August. Mm -hmm. Versus if I am the 30th team, I'm going to be dividing up by 30. So that means you should hit that number with, like, the last week of the season. Right. Um, So essentially you're you're penalizing teams that have higher payrolls, and you are helping teams that have lower payrolls. Mm -hmm. Um, So, again, my... Goal was to basically just find the figure for every team for the past 10 years. Every division winner. Every division yep. winner for the past 10 years. You know, at what point in the season did they hit that 28 games? Um, at, and then I was I divided it by what the payroll was for that season, that particular okay. season. So it did shift, you know, a lot. Um, by the way, the Tigers' payroll has gone through so many fluctuations. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, but uh, so I took the sum of all those. I averaged them. Um, and my goal was to cut out 30 games. I only cut out six. Um, so, you know, I was just kind of playing around with different statistics. Um, there were a lot of really interesting, you know, things that I did find, though, because it wasn't, you know, obviously the highest representation in terms of division winners um, was that number one payroll. Mm-hmm. But after that, it was fairly evenly spread um, from two to 30. Um, the A's, you know, two or three times were in that like 25 to 30 range yep. and they were division winners um so they you know billy bean with team building he's you know getting every last dollar out of his players so right. um so after that you know uh first bucket you know it's a fairly even distribution across the others so wasn't able to cut out 30 games i'm sorry to the mlb but <laughs> I think I think Manfred would love. I mean, six point six. Let's say we can cut out seven games. It's mm-hmm. two series uh, that you're shaving off. You know, that's maybe a little bit of 
maybe one divisional series and one interleague series or something like that to make it work. Uh, seven games, I think, would be a, a good start in the right direction and something that, that wouldn't, um, you know, you're, you're listening to people about what needs to happen to this sport, but then also, you know, not taking exactly what you talked about. Of You're not taking a whole month out of the season where you're cutting these rallies and the best part of the baseball season is that end of season. Right. So if you if you cut that off too much, you truncate the season, you risk losing the best part of the regular season. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a, a, a tough part because you can't just say, okay, then take them off at the front end of the season because it's doesn't really change anything about the dynamic. Right. Um, so so who, maybe maybe that's a strategy too is start the season a little bit later um, to do that. Or we talked before the pod of what other ways could you you now have seven extra days in the season. You know, listening to Chris Bryant, you would want to space the season out exactly as much as it is. Just add more rest in that. You know, do you throw just seven random days off in the season, or do you kind of take it into the All Star break and then really make the two two kind of half seasons? Because you have this mm-hmm. this uh, you know ten day break right. in the middle of the season. Talked about some ways that we could do the home run derby over two days. I think that that would be something that kind of builds intrigue over that. Uh, what do you think? What do you should we you know space these seven games throughout the season or or make kind of that big gap in the middle? Yeah, I mean you made a good point with you know the most exciting part of the season in September and it seems like you have more um, I would say bureaucracy towards the end of the season too with mm-hmm. the trade deadline and then you have September call ups um, and then you have division races um, and obviously you know you could have call ups and trades and division races going on at the beginning of the season it's right. you know it's but that that just that vibe is you know there and i'm sure that people would argue about revenue and and things like that um yeah i know the one big complaint this year in april was there were so many games that were called because of snow right um and i think that it would probably be the least harmful in terms of revenue to cut out april games um I'd be happy. I went my first Sox game this year was 38 degrees. So I, <laughs> sorry Anna. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, those are those are not impress your girlfriend games no. for sure. No. Um, yeah, no no one's clamoring for baseball in April. We still have the NBA. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, as as much as you know, the MLB should not be cowering to to the NBA. I mean. There's, there's people's attention is elsewhere in, in the month of April and all the way through May and June. Um, you know, not staunch baseball fans, but uh, as your, your general public, that's the people that you're making this change for anyways. Um, so I think that that's something to consider of, of you know, y- you want to preserve the kind of the, the look and feel of postseason baseball. It, mm-hmm. It's September, it's October, right, for a reason. And that kind of those dynamics, you don't want to change. Um, so I do think that if they did something like this, it would it would come at the expense of some of those April games. Yeah, and I think what would be super interesting too is the nature of the game and the nature of just collecting stats changes completely. So you have teams like like the Phillies where you know they spread innings out mm-hmm. across a wide variety of pitchers, but if you cut fifteen to twenty games out of a season, you know that's twenty times nine innings. Like that's that would be 180 innings, I think. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, that's this year. That would be three relievers. That would be three less relievers that they would need. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at that point, do you carry six starters? Like, do you, like, it would it would fundamentally change everything. And I think that is one major reason why it will never happen. Yeah, and so. I and I saw a stat today, and we'll we'll talk about this and then move on. That um, it. 
the the average speed. I was talking about the Acuna beating yesterday by the Marlins of the average speed of a of you know the the top or yeah the average speed of a pitch in baseball has gone up dramatically over the last couple of years. Um, where it's kind of it's not about how many innings you can give uh, a B plus pitch. It's how many innings you can give. A, a pitches throughout throughout the you know so you're seeing these starters who 10 years ago might have been okay that projects that's the guy I'm going to leave in eight innings now I'm going to leave him in six and two thirds but get more production or, or peak performance while while he's in there mm-hmm. um, so given that I just think that you know shaving time off makes these players better and more able to perform um, the, to the best of their ability so I think I think this will happen, you know. Present go eighty one to 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 Robbie M and see mm-hmm. see what he thinks. But um, but yeah, there's there's certainly kind of these qualitative reasons to do it, but then also some quantitative, um, you know, science of even if it is just six games, you know, small fraction of the season, I think it could still have some ramifications and at least signal to people uh, that baseball is listening of of it, you know, it wants to change and it wants to. Uh, to preserve players and, and make the sport better. Right. Um, all right. So let's move on to number two. Stock talking baseball. Still uh, talking about the trades that happened before the deadline and kind of how they have worked out. You looked at it um, from more of a, just an AL East angle of of how how this is panning out um, and kind of you know that's it's season season trades that, that kind of affect this season um, like for the Red Sox, but then also have large-scale ramifications for the next three or four years. So what did you what did you see? Yeah, I think this, you know, this started out as just I'm going to look at all the trades and, and I'm just going to see, you know, how do you compare, like, a Prince Fielder for Ian Kinsler swap or mm-hmm. something like that. Like, how, you know, how do you equate two very different players? Um, but what I found as I was going through, I actually kind of went radio silent uh, trade deadline week just – starting the new job like right. so i afterwards i i you know looked at all the trades that went down and um there were so many people who moved out of the al east it was a it was a crazy you know i'm, I'm looking at like the blue jays the rays and the orioles all dumped a ton of people i think the biggest name there definitely is manny machado who might make his way back to the east next year not with the Ro- orioles but you know hopefully not the yankees um but yeah, no, so many people moved out of the AL East, um, and you know it's going to be very top-heavy next year. I feel like it, no one is really set up or is setting themselves up to be contenders next year, except for Yankees and the Red Sox, who are perennially, you know, always ready to win the division, looking to win the division. Um, it's going to be interesting. It's you know, a lot of these trades. And I think we're going to get into this a little bit mm-hmm. in a minute, but there is this overarching, you know, financial thing you have to keep in mind, and you know, contract terms, things like that. And, and these are all, if you were to build a model and you were to say like, oh, like what player is equivalent to this player? Um, these are variables where I think we talked about R squared last time, mm-hmm. where as you add more variables to predict things. Um, your model is going to get better at a decreasing rate. Yep. Um, these are all things that would raise your R. Every every variable you add is going to raise your R squared. Um, but they would be such small increases. But at the same time, they're they're so important in the minds of GMs. These like you know contract terms, things like that. Um, 
So they they can't be excluded. This is this is like a classic example of uh, anyone who's ever taken a stats class has learned about p values and you know statistical significance. And if p is greater than 0.05, then you take that out of your model and mm. things like that. These are the variables that p is greater than 0.05, but you have to keep it in because it is so relevant. Um, right. And and you know knowing the context around things helps so much more than just having this checklist of all right i'm going to remove this variable if it's not statistically significant even Mm -hmm. though i might not know what the ramifications of that are right um so i think you know you have to see things from a lot of different angles and context helps a lot yeah and we've talked before about how every baseball team is kind of playing a different sport simultaneously right in terms of when they can see themselves realistically winning the world series or what realistic goals they have so the oakland a's you know despite their success this season's already a success given given what their franchise is all about and you know bringing the bottom line in every year then they've developed talent that you can kind of, of move from there um you know the the atlanta braves maybe not a world series contender but you know a threat to win the division that year hugely ahead of schedule given what that roster's composition is, right? Boston is playing a much different game in that it's now, right? So when you think about, uh, you know, the, this cost of, of, of we have in the notes of, you know, when Chris Sale leaves and when J.D. Martinez leaves, given that those two guys are going to command a lot of money in two years when they're both up, um, or you pay them, right, these are high stakes. And so so kind of the, the, the micro moves that you have to do to make that happen, um, I think Dave Dombrowski, the Red Sox GM, can justify those. And therefore, other people playing the opposite game or the inverse reap the, bene- reap the benefits. Um, you know, the White Sox, uh, just for the, the trade from, from Yohan Mankata to get or to give sale up, Right, they're playing the inverse game as the Red Sox, and so just just kind of those those dynamics of, of there's always buyers, there's always sellers, mm-hmm. or for every buyer there is a seller, kind of kind of makes this all work. Um, with the Dombrowski thing, I'm curious because it kind of became the narrative with him from his days in Detroit that he you know he he sells the farm, right? Mm-hmm. He he doesn't care about prospects; he wants to cash in. I looked back at the trades that he had made while in Detroit and I didn't I mean there were a few of them Andrew Miller and Cameron Mabin to, to get Miguel Cabrera is kind of the landmark one Miller obviously has had a huge success in his career so far Cameron Mabin is you know on the Mariners right now was on the Astros last year is a journeyman in the league so I mean that that's that's beside the point of how those players panned out but those are your top two prospects in the organization you trade them all in to get basically the best player in baseball in Cabrera. The only other one I saw was trading Rick Porcello, young version of Rick Porcello, uh, your boy, to go get to go get Jonas Cespedes a few years back and late into Dombrowski's tenure. Other than that, I mean, a lot of these moves were were kind of, I don't know, Mariners fans might remember the Casper Wells trade, um, the Austin Jackson trade, things like that that are kind of more micro. So do you think that Dombrowski, that narrative was fair before he got to Boston or was just kind of on a different scale of like, that looks much different when you're in Detroit uh, than it does when you're in Boston. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's a combination of two things. It's I think it's really good to compare Dombrowski to Bean mm-hmm. because of the size of their checkbooks. Right. Um, so I honestly think that they are both coming from a similar angle, but the context around their situations is so different that they shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Um, so Bean, obviously well-documented, you know, 
small checkbook, but he finds hidden value in players, things like that. And essentially what he's doing is he's just taking flyers on guys who, you know, going back to P-values, things like that, they fall outside of the range of that bell curve. So mm-hmm. they're on the they're either on the bad end of that bell curve or they are like the best player in the moment. Right. Um, and he is really good at picking those players who fall into the realm who are also really cheap. Yep. Dombrowski tries that, I think, and he just has a bigger checkbook. And I the problem is when you, you know, you can't apply the same uh, you can't apply the same thinking there when you've changed another variable, mm-hmm. um, and that's such an important variable too. Um, I think talking about payroll, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's it's you know it's everything. It's you know it's so important. The fact that there's no salary cap and all things considered, like the taxes they get and and. You know, the only real penalty you get for spending money is in the international pool, mm-hmm. where like you can't sign. I forget the rule. It's like you can't sign international players if you. I. It's that's like the only penalty <laughs> I know. Like I, I hear, oh, the Red Sox are over the tax threshold and they're gonna have to pay taxes. But do you really think they care? Like yeah. they will be able to shell out money. It's you know, right? They're going to make a ton of money. You know the following season, and you know into the future, it's it's not going to be a big problem. So, I think it's very interesting to see someone who is trying to adapt a concept that wasn't made for him. Mm-hmm. Like it's, and he's not the only one who does it. It's you know, it worked for one person, so everyone is trying to mimic it. Right. Um, it's kind of like stock picking, where like people who guess well at picking a stock, you know. It happens like once in a blue moon because as soon as you think of a way to make money, everyone else is going to jump on it and it's going to devalue right. that method. So I think that a lot of people have jumped on this and now it's time for like the idea to evolve. Mm-hmm. You know, if if one person was doing it um, or if a small cadre of people were doing it like they were in like the 90s and 2000s, um, it's going to help those people immensely. Um, but if everyone's doing it now, including the Phillies, who were so against it for the longest time, uh, it's you know it kind of dilutes the effect of of you know, and it makes your job that much harder because now instead of five teams looking at this one player who could be the greatest player in the world that week, you have thirty clubs looking, and it's going to drive their asking price up. So right. now it's not even a cheap player anymore. It totally flips the system on its head. Or rather than thinking about a player of how they, of thinking about how they are looking at players. So obviously you you have people who are thinking, oh, we have the market cornered and we're looking at this type of player with these five attributes that stick out to us. And those sellers are going to pop green Mm -hmm. uh, that there's three other clubs that are doing the exact same thing because of kind of this, this group think that happens and you see it all the time. And in sports across leagues of, you know, what what Houston's done in in the NBA of of you know pace and pace space um, switching all that stuff once that starts to succeed you hear that become the language that everyone talks about prospects with um, rather than kind of having your own vernacular for how you're looking for things so um, it's it's uh, it's sports but it's also kind of society of how that works too of, yeah. of you know early adopters and everyone kind of following them um, to to the to the next thing uh, by the way cadre. 
That was a fantastic word that you're throwing in there. I I think it's the first time I've used it since like word smart. So uh, <laughs> I now feel a special kind of pressure to uh, to up that word. So if you don't hear from me for a while, it's because I'm I'm googling yeah. um, smart things to say. At this point in the show, Colin and I started talking about clinical trials, and it was great stuff, but it just went a little bit too long to keep in this episode. So we're going to throw that on its own episode in just a couple of weeks, uh, learning about clinical trials and the different applications um, that they have in sports and otherwise. Uh, At this point, we just switch gears, talk about ESPN's BPI rankings, and how uh, there's kind of some flaws with how we choose to rank college basketball teams. There's this perpetual battle in college sports because the denominator, major college sports, we're talking basketball and football here, um, football for one, basketball even more so, of people love rankings, right? Whether it's fantasy rankings, power rankings, people go nuts for them, right? It's part of selling the game. Um, you know, even even BuzzFeed, 18 ways that, you know, uh, your, your best friend is actually your soulmate, right? People love taxonomy, numbers, things being delivered to them in that way. College sports especially. People are nuts about college sports, right? So how do you rank these teams? When we're talking about they're literally playing – there's, there's very little commonality between a team in the Pac-12 and a team in the Atlantic 10 in terms of their schedule. They might have one common opponent if you look at Richmond and Washington if, if you're looking at their schedules. How do you compare those teams? ESPN um, is kind of the arbiter of, of college sports in a lot of ways in terms of the, of the, of the, of the games that they broadcast and also their programming. Um, so they have their own stat that was designed to, uh, to rank teams and it's their BPI, their basketball power index, right? Um, which is framed out for the RPI, the ratings power index, which is basically your record, opponent's record, the opponent's opponent's record, right? And combining those those rankings. So BPI, there's four big determinants in that in that stat. It's based off of your coaches past performance, right? So how is your coach done as, uh, uh, how have your coach's teams done um, over the last 10 years, right? So so basically, um, Coach K teams are performing very well on offense and defense. Um, that weighs heavily into, into BPI, right? So those teams that have uh, track records are going to go or be put up higher, right? The second one, recruiting rankings. Basketball especially, um, right? How does, how does the... Uh, you know the the talent that you're bringing in based off of the consensus of of kind of the uh, recruiting services out there. What does that tell you about what what is on this team? Their current roster returning, right? What's the what's the production coming back from from last year's team? And then also, yeah, so that's it, right? Who's coming back, and then also how well have they performed? Those are the four big factors. So you would think, given that that. You know this, given that that if you're going to name five star recruits coming in, that Duke coming in with the three, you know, the three best players in next year's class would be high in this. You would think uh, Kentucky, right, or or Kansas, and these teams that are kind of the blue bloods of college basketball would just automatically get a bump based off of what we're talking about. So ESPN BPI comes out for this upcoming college basketball season. Number one team, Kansas, right? Kansas was one seed last year, uh, made it to the Elite Eight, right? Number two, Gonzaga. They were a four seed last year. Look at who they got coming back. Uh, their coach's track record. That certainly makes sense. Number three, Tennessee. Three seed last season. Um, talented team. Got a lot of talent coming back from that team last year. These are all making sense. Number four is Marquette. 
right? And so this is not just Marquette shows up in the top 25. Marquette is the number four team in the nation, according to the BPI, which is your determinant of, you know, the BPI and how it's how it's uh, branded is the number four team should be the number five team. The number five team should be the number six team if, if you played them, you know, uh, a thousand times those two games. Marquette was in the NIT last year, so they didn't make the tournament. They lost their leading scorer, right? They don't have a, a long-term track record with their coach. They don't have a crazy recruiting class um, coming in. So it is an anomaly that Marquette would show up, and they weren't even that good if you look at kind of more uh, advanced analytics of how did they perform over 100 possessions on offense and defense all of that last year. So it's an anomaly for Marquette to show up in the top five here. As soon as I saw that, I was like, all right, Colin is going to explain to me, is this stat trash, right? Is is BPI just not good enough? Do we have a better way of doing this, of ranking teams in college basketball? And then in general, when we're talking about stats and say you come up with this, like go 81, right? And you have you have a, a or more, more so with hierarchical rankings, you, you come up with something and it spits out, you know, you're looking for the best defensive player in basketball and you spit it out and Nick Young is in your top five, right? Or, or you know, uh, Lou Williams is in your top five and you're like, these this that shouldn't happen, right? Mm-hmm. So you got to go back and retool it. Mm-hmm. When that happened in a hierarchy stat produces a bad result, um, is that a bad stat or does that just mean that we are kind of looking at the wrong things or our eye test doesn't actually match what, what the number, the numbers do know something that we don't. Yeah. I think there's a few things here. And I think one of the big things is, uh, I have, a, I always feel like organizations that come out with these stats secretly love it when their system comes up with something controversial. Sure. So like this, this article was called Marquette sneaks into the top yeah. five. It was, it's about Marquette and, and West Virginia. And how these I, two teams I bet their click rate went through the roof for and sure. The average amount of times people spent on pages went up and yeah, it's, I, I, yeah, I'm sure that they secretly love that. Um, yeah, no, what I will say about this is I think it's really cool with the coaches patch performance part. Um, that's one of those like, kind of intangible things that they're trying to quantify and I think it's really cool um, to put in a model they don't really explain of those four like what is having the biggest effect they definitely don't and in what direction Mm -hmm. it is because some of these could actually be hurting accuracy Um, I think the biggest thing here uh, is they don't really talk about um uh, a lot of times when you build models, you do all these, like, there are so many different checks you have to do after you build a model to say, like, all right, how is this with predicting uh, positive things? How is this with predicting negative things? You know, they don't go into any of that. Um, I did make a list of a few things here that I kind of opened up the hood on PPI, <laughs> and I followed a few of the links that they put in. But I'm glad that they put links in. Um, that was interesting, although the only link they had... Um, they talk about Bayesian hierarchical model, and it's it's a URL. Um, the URL takes you to a YouTube video of an adjunct University of Iowa professor talking <laughs> about Bayesian statistics in 11 minutes. Um, that's how you learn it. That's exactly how you. That's how I learned it. 11 yeah, minutes. 11 minutes. So I that like when I clicked on it, I actually started laughing because I was like, this is ridiculous. Right. Um, but yeah, no. So some of the problems with BPI. So. Um, uh, I just took a quote uh, from the article. So BPI rating represents its projected point differential against an average Division One team on a neutral court. Mm. So what that means is it's assuming a normal distribution of Division One teams. 
So it's saying, like, if I were to, you know, make a histogram of, you know, how good the teams were, yep. you know, there would be a concentration in the middle, and then as you go out, like, there are some teams that are elite, and there are some teams that are less elite. Mm-hmm. Um, they haven't proved that it follows that distribution, though. It The, the D1, you know, teams could be extremely top-heavy. Right, and how do you even distribute teams, yeah, right? Because exactly. if you're distributing based on record, there's a team that's going to win the Ivy League this year that has will have 28 wins, Yeah. right? So so you can't use BPI to distribute. Right. So what are you using to, to make that happen? Right, and and when you, when you base, you know, uh, this is like a foundational thing in, mm. in model building, which is, you know, getting to the heart of what your probability distribution or the distribution of your data is. Um, and literally doing things like those simple things that I was talking about with like just plotting your data um, and looking at the shape of it on a, on a chart can show so many things about how you should proceed. So I think that if you were to plot, you know, even I don't know what figure they're looking at, but they're assuming some normal distribution. And I am guessing that it is not normally distributed, which mm-hmm. is why um a lot of times they have issues and they have to re-rank actually halfway through the season. Um, so the next thing is they say BPI uses a Bayesian hierarchical model. So this is just a fancy way of saying, what are my odds of w- winning given my coach, my players, my recruits? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is really robust and it's actually like, quote unquote, cutting edge. In the math world, things that are cutting edge, because math is so old, Things that have come up in the past hundred years are considered like cutting edge. So, yeah. um, so Bayesian statistics is is, is one of those things. Um, so the problem is that when uh, data is too similar, this is kind of shit. Mm-hmm. Like it it doesn't help. Um, so there are a huge number of teams and players, and many of them are very difficult to differentiate. Um, and hierarchical models historically have not done a good job of differentiating between these. Mm-hmm. Um, so the model that they built, um, basically they used a super complicated uh, tool to solve, I'm going to say something that is, I don't mean, but to solve a less complicated problem. Um, they're, they're using the wrong tool, basically. Okay. Um, so when you solve a problem in statistics, you have this bias variance variance Mm trade-off. So essentially, do you want, you know, if I plot my data on an XY scatter plot, um, if I draw a line through it, um, it's not flexible, but I'm going to reduce the error. So I'm going to reduce the error as much as possible. So the dot that's farthest away above it and the dot that's farthest away, um, that line, that regression line through it, um, it's going to be the shortest distance possible. But if I were to draw a wiggly line, I could get points where my line is so far from my point mm-hmm. that I lose all that variance. And I, I don't, you know, I, I could. And that's where probably this happened is Marquette was on the other end of that swing mm-hmm. and their model was way too complicated for um, for what they were trying to do. Gotcha. So they, they probably went for a more um, biased model that traded off some variance mm-hmm. um, and that's probably where um, they lost their accuracy which by the way they don't report on 
the tests that you do yeah. to check accuracy. Right. Or or the distance between four and five in this case. Yeah. You know, like like yeah, exactly. you know what what are what's the mod or what what uh, what's the margin between between teams that, yeah. that you're coming up with? I think the one of the, the I think the very first podcast we did, I was talking about how five thirty eight came out with their upset predictor mm-hmm. and and the way they did that was they did use something called um, they used Gaussian kernel, so it's like support vector modeling is, is the, the topic in statistics. And um, essentially you you have this feature space where all the teams are plotted in it and they went back like 15, 20 years, something like that. Mm-hmm. And they were just trying to find the teams that were most similar no matter what year it was. Um, but they never said how close the dots were to each other. Mm-hmm. So right, right. if like the 2018 Villanova team is like the 2014 Arkansas team, mm-hmm how similar is it to them like yes if it's if you're comparing your team to a team that won the national championship uh it doesn't necessarily mean that your team is going to win the national championship because those two points could be so far from each other and they it's just not being reported correctly right so right and that happens a lot when you're talking about um like uh player evaluations for drafting of, of mm-hmm. this player gets compared to this and even statistically there's like the the Carmelo um, efficiency or not not efficiency but the Carmelo similarity score between players um, that Kevin Pelton developed it's, you know the ins and outs are, are beyond me and something that I haven't looked too deeply in but I'm imagining that's something too where um, you know a player might get fairly graded to Carmelo Anthony because they're very similar in terms of dimensions and their scoring um, but if you look at them and that's that's just the closest comparison right doesn't do, that doesn't necessarily mean that that is what you're going to get as right. far as a one-to-one right. and that's again where like descriptive things like standard deviation like how does my model deviate you know if I if it's guessing one thing like on average how far away are my guesses from mm-hmm. the, the truth so yeah. gotcha um, so Interesting to see with BPI, right? It, it it does an interesting job of incorporating key factors that are relevant to, to college basketball. Your coach's track record absolutely matters, right? Think about think about how the, the tournament ends every year um, of who's playing in it. It's usually the same teams because of those coaches. Um, so I appreciate that, and I appreciate their effort to rank. Um, but is this, you know, just kind of quickly, is this a problem where – this is just a really hard thing to do of ranking college yeah. basketball teams. Oh yeah, and there's a reason why no one has come out with a hundred percent accurate model or mm-hmm. anything like that. It's you know, it's like who would have guessed that a 16 seed would have beat a one seed this year? Right. It's whoever's model that was. So that model would have traded off variance for bias. So, uh, and then you run into other problems with that so that's that's actually a good example of the complete opposite problem where um that person you know the line they drew was so flexible that you know or so inflexible that instead of like trying to connect all the dots in a plane they just drew a straight line through Mm -hmm. and they you know if their model predicted that the 16 seed was going to upset the one seed it was just because it was such a rigid line and and it was you know it wasn't taking into account all the factors. Right, so. right. 
yeah, very interesting um, kind of the, the trade-off that you have to do there to, to, to make a model and um, the difficulty of the, of the work that goes into that. But obviously there's a demand for it. There's an appetite for it mm-hmm. based off of, especially, you know, you'll see it all fall of, of the, the CFP rankings. And um, I think next time we can talk about the, 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 the playoff odds that are constantly adjust, adjusting in college football on 538. Uh, we, can, we can target them or talk about them, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever you choose to use uh, next time. Um, all right, last topic here was was an interesting one, and, and I like when we get into the the financial sides of this, and kind of um, this just goes back to like when I would play uh, like any video game, sports video game. Uh, you know, playing the actual game itself was fun, but after a certain point, after like two thousand six or seven, games started to get really good of like the the management of the team, yeah. like sim the game itself, but the actual management of you know whether it was recruiting in certain games or. Um, or just the kind of the trading and things like that of the day-to-day operations. Those ones used to be more fun to me. And so this one we'll talk about the, the, the strategies um, that there are to build teams in the NFL. Obviously, you win by having good players, right? That is, that is extremely evident. You don't have that. You don't have good coaching, right? Those, those two things are, are, are very telling of, of what your success is going to be. Um, but within that, right, assume you have good players and, and kind of and you have the coach figured out, how do you make it happen? Listen to uh, a clip from MIT Sloan. Um, it was Kevin Demoff, who uh, is the CEO of the Rams, and he was talking about kind of how the, the economy of building a team has changed in the last, last few years um, and how, how the, uh, the constraints within the market, with a salary cap, a rigid salary cap, um, but then also um, kind of how teams have gone about beating that. So the first thing he talked about is, you know, for better, the, the NFL has changed to, the, to limit the amount of practice time. So the example, he's sitting right next to Teddy Bruschi. He says, Teddy, uh, it takes players that I draft this year three years to get the same amount of practice time that you got in one season, right? So, so there's a huge gap in terms of the amount of just exposure to development um, that these players are having. So development is much much more stunted and much more has to be more efficient if it's going to happen at all um, for, for, for players based off of the amount of practice time you don't, don't have now. Second point he says is being successful in drafting is huge, uh, but you basically have five years from when that player that you draft becomes now a free agent to command their actual value uh, in the market, where it's not dictated by these these rules and this the rookie cap of uh, or the rookie pool of, of what money they're owed as, as rookies and the, the 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 youth contract or not youth but the, uh, the 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 young players contracts are governed by a very strict set of rules where as soon as after that now they're open up to whatever teams are willing to pay them based off of market value. So you have that five year window, right? And you want to keep players within that window and kind of move them around. See with the Rams last year midseason they go and trade for uh, Sammy Watkins, a guy who was kind of flaming out in, in, L, in Buffalo. You see what you have because that player is still young and was talented, drafted early uh, in the draft a few years ago for a reason. This summer goes out and gets Marcus Peters, or this winter goes out and gets Marcus Peters. Same deal, right? Kansas City, extremely talented, kind of wore out his welcome there, but you still have him cheap, right? So that's, that's worth doing. Last thing is that there's kind of um, this is this is kind of just a more of a product of what Demoff said, but he said you know the idea of team building is kind of um, gone off into two camps, right? There's there's the cheap quarterback theory, right? Because the quarterback is is more important than any other position in in sports. Cheap quarterback theory, you hit on one, 
right, and and hit on one via drafting, right? You get them within those first five years, which the Seahawks did with Russell Wilson, where you have an extremely cheap quarterback because you drafted him in the third round, and then you can fill out the rest of your team, the $117 million or however much money you have in that year's cap to work with, or what the Eagles are currently doing. The Eagles drafted Carson Wentz second overall. means they only have to pay him around $5 million, right? Look at Kirk Cousins, who's making $30 million, um, arguably not as good of a player, right? So there's that strategy you have so little dedicated to the quarterback that now you can go out and and draft or now you can go out and get whoever you want pay them that money or there's the we've hit on everyone else we've developed a team uh we got we just need to go get that quarterback right to get us to that point because it's it's equal you know which is what the vikings did the broncos are doing uh and the 49ers are doing as well right you go out and get cousins keenum and garoppolo we talked about which of those two strategies is better and more effective? Um, and this is kind of a more of a theoretical because, you know, Seahawks and Eagles won a Super Bowl. Um, you know, the other group that we're talking about, you really haven't seen that since Peyton Manning coming in and, and the Broncos going to get him. Um, so it's kind of it's kind of a, a discussion for the future rather than looking back and seeing, OK, what's the answer here? You had a really good point um, that, that I didn't really think about, but just kind of the the age that you're working with within the NFL pool. Yeah, so um, one of the first things I did, and you sent me a bunch of really interesting articles, and they're mentioning you know this youth movement in the NFL, and um, I wanted to see across sports what the average age of the rookies are. Mm-hmm. Um, so MLB, 24 and a half. Um, I couldn't find NFL, um, but the very interesting thing that I did find is that the average retirement age in sports in general is 33, but in football, that number is 28. Mm-hmm. So let's say, you know, average age, rookie, NFL, 21, 22 years old. Um, that means that if you, you know, if you have someone under team control for four or five years, um, you are controlling them for 50 to 75% of what could be their playing career. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you have them for... The entire, you know, they they could possibly grow and peak and start to decline, you know, in their tenure with your team. Which could be four years. Yeah, right. Exactly. The average average NFL career is three point three years. Mm-hmm. I think one of the really interesting things, and the one of the most interesting angles, um, and it's kind of a hiccup that the NFL did to itself is <laughs> you this idea of acceleration of contract size so you know you have a contract minimum you have a contract level when you draft you know rookies and then at a certain point it's steady 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 and then it shoots up Mm -hmm. like it it just so it's an exponential growth right um and because the second that player is off the rookie contract there's no secondary tier to how much they're they're valued right yeah and i think it's a really interesting idea of um, you want to try to tamper that acceleration as much as possible. So mm-hmm. um, if I think about this in terms of math, um, I think most people have taken a calculus course before where you have the slope of a line and, you know, you draw a tangent line to this curve, mm-hmm. you know, the, the price is pretty steady and then all of a sudden it just shoots up and it's got this angle and, Basically, what you're trying to do is you are trying to keep that slope as low as possible. So 
it's this idea of acceleration or rate of change. You want to so smooth it. You want to smooth that curve out as much as possible mm-hmm. while maintaining or increasing your value of your team. Yep. Um, so it's it's this really interesting intersection where um, you you need to keep cost low and quality high, and mm-hmm. that's very hard to do. Yep. Um, and I think. You know, and and the reason you need to do that is given the cap environment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's you know it, it's so interesting how different contracts are handled across sports. Yep. Um, honestly, like outside of football and baseball, I don't I don't even know how what the contract environment is like for basketball or well, which, hockey. Or, what you were talking about, at least in basketball, is you kind of have you have these different levels of how much a player can make based off of how many years they have mm-hmm. been in the league, mm-hmm. which might sound limiting, but this is also in, a, in an environment where you can have a player play, like Jared Dudley right now has been in the league since 2008, right? He's a 10-year veteran in the league, has made, even if that money has ever been capped to him and he's a journeyman player in the league, his career is long enough as such that he can he can you know he's made a ton of money just by the sheer amount of years that he's been in the league. NFL that is not the case given what we've what we just talked about. I think what's super interesting is is as I think about it in my head, and I constantly do this now, especially since my job is very mathematical. I think about things in terms of like the distribution of the data. Mm-hmm. So for baseball, essentially that contract size is linear. Like you know as time goes on you know that contract is going up 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 and maybe towards the end it kind of tails off and it starts to down mm-hmm. you know go down a little bit but for all intents and purposes through and there's really only four years, data points on that of yeah the four contracts that you probably signed in your career exactly yeah and and you know it's 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 going up at a pretty steady rate um football exponential it's steady 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 and then it shoots way up it's, yeah. it's you know it's not you know gradual it's just it goes way up um, for, for what it sounds like with basketball, you have a, what's called a step function. Yep. Um, so it's it's just you know, as you reach a certain level of service, it jumps up. Yep. Um, and there's no real slope there. It's it's um, it's actually it's called discontinuous when um, there's no slope there. Uh, I'm not defining that correctly, but for all these purposes, there is no slope. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's even harder to model then. Um, it's right. it's. You know, a lot of teams, their foundation of analyzing these things is, you know, am I, you know, is my salary growing too fast for my team in terms of, in relation to quality, things like that. And they, they try to level off these, these things. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really interesting to me, like the different distributions of the data mm-hmm. and how things react. It really, it's like, it's three di- totally different, you know, types of analysis that you are forced to do then um you know i know that uh what's his name de podesta went from mm-hmm. baseball to football yep um he was like a gym for the browns i think or yeah he's like uh that. he's jonah hill and yes in uh, moneyball yeah yeah um so yeah so he was with the indians organization and then he moved to the a's he was with billy bean for a while and then he jumped to the browns i mm-hmm. think um yeah it's you know right and, and talking about the Browns specifically in terms of, you know, obviously this is this is the Browns. This is the team with the the going going back two steps before we talk about the Browns it from from a justice perspective, given what we know about the NFL and given our previous conversation earlier, 
and and just kind of the the nature of a sport in where whether it's your brain or not the collisions that are happening the t- the toll to your body is is much higher than it is in baseball or basketball the other you know two big lucrative team sports in the U.S. Um, you would think that having a a structure that limits how much money you can make in your first five years of of the league is pretty. Is, is it, I don't think it's fair, right? And, and so the NFL will say, I guess that that the uh, that the average length of a career is five years, and then you know you get that second contract. Majority of the time, that's not happening, right? So whatever you're making in your first five years is what you are getting paid um, in your NFL career. Which, if you start to perform, you know, given that these these careers, you know, you reti- you retire in twenty eight, you enter at, at twenty two or twenty one or so, you're probably peaking in your third year, right, or earlier. You're already playing like one of the best players in the league, but you can't make that money. Um, you're going to be out of the league before, like, shortly after you get that second contract. If that's the case, it's a difficult structure to. Um, doesn't really match what's actually happening in the in the sport yeah yeah and i think you know when i was reading about the whole youth movement going on and uh i was just trying to like do a you know mental exercise of all right like what are some implications of that so you know younger players you know bigger personalities might come in you might get a younger audience to watch Mm -hmm. games that's more money um so you know, there's more revenue like that will be talked about in terms of sharing with the players. So maybe contracts do go up and, and maybe, you know, it becomes that much harder for teams to build these, you know, championship caliber teams. Um, the other thing, too, on the opposite end of that is younger players and it takes longer for them to develop. Less experience means you're more likely to cause or get injured. Less practice time, too, as we talked about. Right. Yep. So, you know, do you see injuries also go up? And does that mean you have to play, pay your players even more? Or does that mean, well, like, you weren't able to play all year, so I'm not going to pay you? Mm-hmm. You know, are there stipulations in the contract where it's like if you miss a season, you... Can get cut. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of different, you know, different things going on that... It's going to change the landscape of the game, and right? And so, even the same money, but now there's guarant- there's more guarantees involved. Um, that you see that money would be a step in the right direction, right? Given that you know to the owners, it's the writing the check. It might as well be guaranteed, right? And right. given given the revenue that's coming in, um, it's just it's just a tough tough dynamic um, when you, when you think about the human human cost of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so so us us talking about how to negotiate that. That, that structure uh, is is tough given that. But um, I think what you were saying of, of all of these are just true and, and just means that the league should be more conscientious of how that money gets allocated um, because, as we know, you know, you can go and buy a Bud Light can and it has an NFL team logo on it. There's there's plenty of money um, that, that should go to, to the people who are – putting it out for six years or less, three years in the league. Um, so tough, tough one there. You were talking about dynamic time warping, which <laughs> I looked at, I watched like, I watched an 11 minute YouTube <laughs> video um, that kind of <laughs> tried its best. And it's basically, as I understand dynamic time warping, it's like, okay, you have, uh, you're trying to c- compare two series of data, right? Mm-hmm. That are kind of simultaneous to this, to when they started to when they ended. Mm-hmm. 
and you are looking at kind of what are these connections between those points across the series and then looking at uh, that's kind of where I got lost. Yeah, so, <laughs> right? so think of it like this. How do you compare an NFL season to an MLB season if you're looking at 16 versus 162 games? Yep. Um, and essentially what dynamic time warping does is it solves the problem of uh, differences in length of time. Um, so what you would do is you would look at your MLB season and essentially you're folding time in on itself. So imagine time is like uh, a string, a mm-hmm. long string, and you are folding it in on itself um, and kind of like cutting it, cutting a piece off, reattaching it, cutting off until you have two equally sized lengths of string. And basically what you're doing is you are trying to figure out where it makes the most sense to make those knots mm-hmm. um, so that you can compare the two. Right. Because you hear all the time, well, not all the time, but I've heard in the past, like, players complaining about the salaries of players in other sports. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, all right, if someone in the MLB is being paid $30 million and they're playing 160 games, how is that equivalent to somebody in the NBA who's being paid $30 million? Yeah. Or the NFL, when there are such different lengths of seasons and number of games played. Right. I forget what the what the comparison was, but it was right after the Steelers couldn't come to an agreement about Le'Veon Bell's contract. There was some NBA player, might have been Jabari Parker, someone like that, a fringe player who got $20 million a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, eyes emoji of like, <laughs> wow, I just want some of that. Some of that action um, for 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 me. So yeah, I mean, there's there's kind of that that uh, that relative scale between the between the two leagues, and it kind right. of comes down to to how their 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 contracts are collectively bargained, but then also, uh, yeah, just 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 what the structures that exist within that league. Right, right, and it's you know, you can't make a one for one comparison with any of these things, and and you know, I think as I've talked about today and every time like none of these are 100% accurate none of the things that I talk about are 100% accurate <laughs> in terms of like you know their statistical you know prowess whatever it's 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 important to understand like um, the limitations of the different tools you can use and and these are some things that you can use to solve problems like this mm-hmm. where you have differences in time and differences in, in, in whatever. So um, it's definitely going to be a topic that's debated for a long time. Um, I think it's funny. I sent you an article about how um, I forget who it was. Joe Jason Worth yep. was, was shitting on statisticians and I've seen ruining the game. Of, yeah. Ruining the game. And then uh, Shaq, I've seen clips of him talking about how the stats people are the kids who got picked last in gym class. Kevin Durant calling everyone blog boys. Yeah, yep. yeah. So it's it's funny. I think it's hilarious hearing things like that, and I think that there are definitely limitations that people don't talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's very interesting. Think trying to it's a very hard thing to compare things that seem so different. Right. So it's. There's so many different things, angles you can take it from. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just happens all the time of even looking at a player in college, looking at how like, Jalen Brunson at Villanova, you're thinking, this player is great. Mm-hmm. 
at Villanova, how does that look at the next level? Right. right? And then you see him in Summer League struggle immensely, Mm -hmm. even though it's just one year removed playing against kind of this in-between rung of competition. And why does that happen um, is due to all these different factors, some of which have nothing to do with with actual stats that we can't can't, pin down. Um, So it's a tough thing. With the NFL, real quick, of just kind of that that point with with quarterback structure, seven of the top ten highest paid players in the league are quarterbacks. Fifteen of the top twenty five paid players in the league are quarterbacks. Um, you know, it, and you think about twelve teams make the playoffs, right? So you're paying a premium uh, for something that might not even get you to the playoffs. Then you look at the ratio. So sixty percent of let's just say. 70% to 60% of the top paid players in the league whether it's the draft whether it's um, you know somewhere somewhere in that are, are are quarterbacks when it comes to the draft four of the top 10 picks in 2018 were quarterbacks which is you know 40% obviously four of the top 25 picks were quarterbacks so there's no picks that are quarterbacks from the from 10 to 15 on so given that i mean you just have this massive gulf if you hit on a quarterback in that you are you are taking someone that isn't subject to these positional costs. Browns draft Baker Mayfield number one overall. Saquon Barkley goes number two, right? A quarterback and a running back. You can see in the same summer, Kirk Cousins gets thirty million dollars. Le'Veon Bell can't decide on it, or they, you know they can't decide whether they want to give Le'Veon Bell fifteen million dollars. So. Mm-hmm. There's there's marginal differences between Barkley and Mayfield now, but if those two players progress as as they're supposed to, Mayfield will make much more money mm-hmm. uh, than Barkley does. So given that you have quarterbacks in this very tight window of, of before they they co- they cost an astronomical amount, um, and I think that that is the the crux of that that question of do you pay heavy on quarterback or do you spend light? It's one or the other essentially of the game you want to play. And it's interesting that the Browns, um, you know, Bill Barnwell, who's one of the best NFL writers in a lot of perspective, a lot of respects, did his annual um, building the perfect team with the given the salary structure. Um, you know, you have to have a player from each team on your on your roster. Carson Wentz is the quarterback on that, right? So Carson Wentz currently cheap. Eagles is one with him basically, although Nick Foles played in the in the Super Bowl. Um, the Browns passed on Wentz, right? They traded out of that pick to, to, to not take Carson Wentz. Um, they did the same thing with Deshaun Watson the following year. Two guys who, you know, Baker Mayfield could have a pretty good season and be miles behind those two guys. Um, so it makes me think that the Browns chose to do that given the obvious talents that were in front of them because if you draft a quarterback and it's too early, the rest of your team isn't built out, Drafting a good quarterback makes you start picking. Now you're a seven and nine teams. So you're not picking at the start of the draft. You're not getting that premium ta- premium talent. Um, that you kind of build the core. You suck for a while, and then once you think that you you know the the you're got a bunch of chips around you, that's when you go in rather than starting with that. Um, and I think that I think there's some logic to that. But although if you compare them as prospects, I don't know if Mayfield is on the same level as Wentz and Watson. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, you mentioned that seven of the top ten highest paid players in the league are quarterbacks. I don't think it's a coincidence that the position that seems to have the most longevity is the highest paid. And I think that's just telling of where general managers put their weight mm-hmm. in terms of contract size in the NFL. Um, think about... Uh, 
Jimmy Garoppolo and Matt Stafford contracts. Yep. Uh, Stafford got a stupid amount of money last year. He he's good, but he's never performed at the level that you know the money that he was given uh, mm-hmm. warranted. Um, but it was just years. I think it was like six year contract, something like that. Yeah. Um, it, it's just a, a a lot of money for a but for a long amount of time. Right. Um, Jimmy G got a huge contract for twenty eight five for having played like four games. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like it's, eight career starts. Or something yeah, like that. yeah. Like I think that there is a huge amount of weight put into players who can give you more service. Um, and I think it works the other way too. So, um, if you have a player who's not going to give you, you know, we talked about peaking early or, or just the life cycle of a player's value being shorter, having mm-hmm. a shorter window. Um, it's as bad as it sounds. Teams would much rather get you at your peak and not develop you, not have to spend the money to develop you. Um, then spend all that money and have to wait like three years before you're this right. superstar. Right, because someone you you spend someone else's opportunity cost at that right. point. Right, it, it's either you you wait you wait them out to get to the player that you want them to be, mm-hmm. or you let someone else wait it out, see what the player is, and then take okay, we don't want to put all that development in, but we're going to give them a year while they're still cheap to to get them to get them to where we want to be. Yeah, and I think that. This ties back to what we were talking about before in terms of, you know, money ball related things where you're trying to predict those guys who are at both ends of the spectrum where one day they're the worst player in the league and the next day they're the best player in the league. Mm. I think it's very similar, except it's that deviation is more the amount of time it takes to get someone up to speed quote unquote so yeah. you know if it takes you three years to get to the level of quality where you're you know a pro bowl caliber player um you know at one point you weren't at that level and that deviation could have been massive and i think that that's the way that the nfl looks at it is you know whereas in baseball it's that you know deviation and quality i'm going to pay you little in the nfl it's deviation and quality but there's kind of an asterisk asterisk where it's like we're more sure that you're going to be good it's just the deviation is how much time is it going to take to mm-hmm. develop you and are are we getting you in the window where you are going to peak or have you peaked or are you in your basically downfall until you retire which is might be in a year or two right so right yeah, and the NFL also deals with the fact that like the, the the way that you evaluate and weight out a defensive end is different than the way that you're looking at a third baseman because a third baseman can provide very specific value as a hitter mm-hmm. and then lose it as a as a as a fielder. And so right. everyone's looking at the, those two things, right? How are they as a hitter? How are they as a fielder? Or and then kind of the the subtleties within that. Whereas a defensive end. There's there's a clear one metric that they're doing, and not not really you know it's 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 a much more specialized position that you're looking at, and can you do it well? Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's always interesting to look at you know what what goes into how how teams make those decisions, and we're also making the assumption that anything that the Browns uh, were doing was based off of any sort of 
ground science or or strategy, yeah. um, or or was it that they had a GM that was willing to wait it out? Uh, the fans got tired of that, and then they said, "All right, we got to push the chips in." Right. Whether or not Mayfield was really the guy, or or not, so only time will tell how that works out. I think the Browns are are definitely fun to uh, to scoff at, but hopefully that they have something there that can kind of be a fun case study for how to build teams. And then there's the Pats, who um, really though the way that they have done it is very simple, and it's a trap that teams fall into all the time. Is the, the, the kind of the, the cost of loyalty, right? And how you pay people that have done well for you um, and you don't really bat an eye about it. And then the Patriots have done the exact opposite that uh, shelling people as soon as that they are at the crux of we're going to have to pay them or uh, they leave for free. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. I mean, they guess the peaks better than anyone and they play that. And it's not like, you know, they sign anyone besides brady who stays there for Mm -hmm. you know a ridiculous amount of time right so and they also talked him into and bought him in of how about how about 12 million a year when you're really worth 50 right right yeah yeah no it's it's there's something to be said about the length of contracts and the turnover um i think that you know being able to guess when somebody is going to be amazing and you know playing on that value is basically bunny ball it's Mm -hmm. you know it's the exact same concept except you know it's more time related um, than it is in in baseball and it's just because baseball career can stretch much longer than Mm -hmm. football career on average for sure for sure um, all right. Well, I think we've literally talked <laughs> ourselves to death. Mm-hmm. It is it is getting late. Um, good stuff here. We will uh, we will hit this again sometime mid mid uh, September probably with some more some more football focus um, towards that. And as we head into the baseball postseason, always a pleasure, Colin. 